The prophet Isaiah in chapter 6 writes this. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Sitting on a throne, he was high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. These are heavenly beings. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. From Revelation chapter 4, this is John's vision of the throne sometime in the future. It says, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the throne were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were seven burning torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, never cease to say, holy, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns down before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will, they existed and were created. Picture this with me. John doesn't even know how to describe it. There are creatures that we couldn't even imagine with eyes in front and behind, like an eagle, like an ox, like a man, and they just cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty before a throne, and, and it looks like a rainbow and, and precious jewels and emeralds, and, and there's rumblings and peals of thunder that come from the throne of the living God, and every day they never cease to say, millions of angels around the throne, you are different, you are set apart heart. You are worthy. You are holy. You are pure. The whole earth is filled with your glory. This is our God. He is independent. That means he needs nothing and no one to exist. He's infinite in space. He is eternal in time. He is beyond human comprehension. He is supreme, sovereign. He is transcendent. That means he is above and beyond us. He is the only God, majestic in power, everywhere present, all-knowing, all-powerful, and unchanging. He is the very definition of holiness, wisdom, truth, and love. He is goodness. He is faithfulness. He is mercy, 
kindness, righteousness, justice, and grace. There is nobody like him. He is exalted above the highest heaven, the one who spoke and there was light and life and breath. He is the creator and upholder of all things. There is no one like our God. There's this moment in the Old Testament where that God comes to Moses and he says, I need you to do something. I need you to go tell the nation of Egypt, their leader, Pharaoh, who has enslaved my people, it's time to let them go. And Moses stands before this burning bush and the bush is not consumed. And Moses asks a question that you and I would probably ask too. Um, what's your name? Exodus chapter three, verse 13, it says, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In Hebrew, God says these words. He says, Eye asher eye. Literally translated, it's I am that I am. And for every member of the nation of Israel, for every Jew, for every God fearer, that one statement, Eye asher eye, I am that I am, I am who I am, would come to represent everything they knew about God. Everything that they just covered, or we just covered, was wrapped up in that one statement. I am who I am. Fast forward about a thousand years, most people in the nation of Israel are speaking Greek at this time. It's about 300 years before Jesus shows up on the scene and some Hebrew scholars get together and they say, we should probably translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. That translation is called the Septuagint. Ask me later why it's called the Septuagint. We don't have time to cover it now. And when they translate it into Greek, they translate that phrase, eye asher eye, I am who I am. In Greek, it's this word, ego, Emi. Ego emi. It's up here on the screen in the Greek and in the transliteration. I need you to say it with me because it's absolutely mission critical for the text that we're going to get into this morning. Ego emi. Say it. Ego emi. There you go. It's not ego, like a waffle. Ego emi. One more time. So now in a new language, this one phrase, ego emi, I am who I am, represents everything they knew about the Lord of the universe, exalted and lifted up. Ego emi. The passage that we're going to get into this morning is Matthew chapter 14. Don't turn there quite yet. We'll get there in a minute. It begins this way. John the Baptist, Jesus' first cousin, probably one of his longest time friends, has been unjustly murdered. He was beheaded and his head was served on a platter to somebody who thought it would be funny. So Jesus is mourning the loss of one of his closest friends and family members, and he wants to get alone. He wants to go to a desolate place and grieve and mourn. And when he shows up to this place where he thinks no one else will be, there's a crowd there waiting for him, and they need stuff from him. They, Jesus, heal us. Jesus, teach us. And so Jesus, it says he has compassion on the crowd, and he begins to heal, and he begins to feed, and he begins to uh, teach them. It, like I said, even, it, you know, even when it was come time for dinner, no 
nobody has anything to eat, Jesus feeds them and he performs a miracle and feeds them. And, and once he's done all that, once he's done, he dismisses the crowd and he puts his disciples in a boat and they're on the Sea of Galilee and he sends them to the other side. Matthew chapter 14, if you have your Bibles... Matthew chapter 14. If you don't, the scripture's up here on the screen. You could use the uh, pew Bible in front of you. It will be in verse 22. The scripture says this, immediately he, that's Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, still looking for that desolate place. When evening came, he was there alone. But, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So here's the deal. Jesus dismisses the crowd. He puts his disciples in a boat. And I love the language here. He doesn't say, hey, this is a suggestion. Meet me on the other side. He says, you in the boat now go, and I'll meet you on the other side of the lake. Verse 23 says that when evening came, he was there. That means he was up on the mountain alone. And, and in our culture, we say evening, that's kind of like any time between like four and eight, right? Evening. But in this culture, it was a very, very specific time. Evening was sunset. The latest possible sunset that would happen in this uh, place, in this particular area of the world in June would be about 7.50. The earliest possible sunset is 4.50. So since Jesus dismissed the disciples before he went up on the mountain and when evening, that sunset, when evening came, he was there alone. That means that these guys are already out on the lake by the time sunset hits. So the latest possible time they could have been out on the lake is 7.30. Latest, latest possible time. Could have been as early as 4, 4.30 they could have been out on the lake. But latest possible time would have been 7.30. Second thing is, based on the geography of the text, they're up on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, and they're headed from a city called Bethsaida to Gennesaret. It's about a five-mile um, trek across the lake. I've got a good friend. His name is Mark. He's a very, very good can canoeer. Is it canoeer? Canoeist? It's, it's canoeman. That's right. It's canoeman. That sounds right. It's a canoeman. So my buddy Mark is a very, very good canoeman. And I asked him, I said, Mark, how long would it take you to go about five miles in your canoe? He said, at a brisk pace, it would take me less than an hour to go five miles. And he goes out all the time. So you've got 12 professional fishermen in a boat that are used to this sea. They know it very, very well. In a parallel passage in the Gospel of Mark, it tells us that they are straining against the oars. So they do have oars. They're not just relying upon the wind. All of them have oars. All of them are pros. All of them know this lake by the back of their hand. This should not have taken them very long to get from one side of the lake to the other. But the text also tells us in verse 24 that the boat was beaten by the waves and the wind was against them. Pick it up in verse 25. It says, in the fourth watch of the night, he, that's Jesus, came to them walking on the sea. Let's talk timeline real quick. Fourth watch of the night. Typically in a Hebrew mindset, there are three watches of the night. In a Roman mindset, which is what Matthew is using here, there are four watches of the night. The fourth watch of the night is between three and 6 a.m. 
So Jesus shows up in the fourth watch of the night. So the earliest possible time Jesus could have shown up was 3 a.m. The latest possible time we've already established that they would have been on the lake was 7.30 p.m. So at the very least, they've been on this lake for seven and a half hours. At the very least. At the most, we're talking 12, 13, 14, 15 hours to, to do a trek that should have taken them less than an hour. Here's what we know. Regardless of how long they've been on, at the very least seven and a half, and at the most 14, 15, 16, here's what we know regardless. These guys are beat. They're exhausted. They're afraid. They have nothing left. They are straining against the oars. They're aware that death may be imminent. They have absolutely nothing left. They have no more tricks left in the book and they are afraid for their lives. And listen close, isn't that when Jesus typically tends to show up? I don't know about you, but that's when Jesus shows up in my life, when I'm afraid, when I'm whipped, when I've exhausted all my resources, when I've got nothing left. So picture it with me. One of the disciples in the back, maybe one of the lesser known, right? And, and, and the night is loud because the wind and the waves are beating against the boat and he cries out, I see something. Like, like a figure, like a shadow, a silhouette. It's a ghost. It's a ghost. Pick it up in verse 26. It says, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, a lot of folks might jump to the next segment of this narrative because uh, Jesus or Peter says to Jesus, hey, if it's you, call me out on the water. And Jesus says, all right, come. And Jesus steps or Peter steps out of the boat and he begins to walk on the water towards Jesus. And there have been songs and poems and sermons and whatever written about Peter. And we're going to get to Peter here in a minute. I absolutely love Peter. Great, fantastic example for us. We'll get there in a minute. But I want to stop and camp out out on that little statement Jesus makes. He says, take heart, be of good courage, don't be afraid. It is I, don't be afraid. I am going to give you two guesses as to what it is I means in the original language. You'll probably only need one. Everybody say it with me. Ego, emi. Take heart. I am who I am. Don't be afraid. Take heart. Ego emi. Take heart. Eye asher eye. Take heart. I am who I am. Everything they knew about the God of the universe was standing before them in physical presence in Jesus of Nazareth. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is making an absolute claim to divinity here. No second guessing, unequivocal. He is making a claim. I am who I am. None of this good prophet stuff, none of this good teacher stuff. He is saying, I am God. Psalm 77 and Job chapter 9 says, only God walks on the sea. 
Psalm 148 says the storms do his bidding. And just in a moment, Jesus will get into the boat and the wind will go away like that. Here it is, family of God. This is the crux of our faith. This is the piece of Christianity that sets it apart from every other world religion. That the God of the universe became a man. He took on flesh. He became a man in Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago. I'm just going to read you what the scripture says about him. It says it much better than I ever could. The prophet Isaiah again says, therefore... The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That means God with us. And the government will be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Hebrew says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He, that's Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high where he still rules and reigns, by the way, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. John writes this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Colossians, my favorite, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might become preeminent. For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. I am who I am. Eye asher eye ego. Amy, become flesh and dwelt among us. If you're a theist in this room today, no matter what kind of faith background you come from, no matter what kind of you know, faith affiliation you claim, if you're Jewish, if you're Muslim, if you're Hindu, if, if you're just a theist, like I believe in God, you and I would probably agree on two things. First, you and I would probably agree on this, that God is bigger than you and me. So the pantheist that says God is everything, or the panentheist that says God is in everything, or the Muslim who says God is great, or the Hindu who says God is Brahman, not a personal God, but kind of a greater consciousness or conception of God, no matter what faith background you come from, just that simple statement, when you say, I believe in God, it indicates that you would accept the reality of a divine being that is greater, bigger, and altogether different than you and me. Number two, something about me 
Who I am, what I've done, how I'm wired has disconnected me from the divine. That's the second thing we would agree on. So in Hinduism, it's kind of continuous reincarnations to reconnect with the divine. New Age would say, look into yourself, watch more Oprah, whatever it is, and you will reconnect with the divine. Buddhism says that nirvana is blowing out the flame of sensual desires, overcoming oneself to avoid endless reincarnations. Islam says, follow the five pillars to reconnect with the divine. Religionism, it's just kind of a general term for like, I gotta pray, I gotta go to church, I gotta do this religious stuff. That's how you reconnect with the divine. Moralism says, do more good stuff than bad stuff. Let, let, you know, the scales of justice, if you do more good than bad, you will reconnect with the divine. Two things, God is bigger and something about me has disconnected me from him. So I've got to work my way back to him. That's what every major world religion would say. So they've been trying to answer this question for thousands of years. How do I work my way back to this divine being that I have disconnected myself from? And Jesus comes along, he says, that's the wrong question. You do not have to work yourself back to God in any way, shape, or form. You know why? Because God worked himself to you in the form of his son, Jesus, ego, emi. All the work's done. It's over. Because Jesus, the God-man, worked himself to you. Martin Luther once wrote that the mystery of the humanity of Christ, that he sunk himself into our flesh, is beyond all human understanding. C.S. Lewis once said that the incarnation, ego emi, that that God became flesh, is the greatest miracle of the Scripture. Forget the Red Sea, forget people being raised from the dead, forget all that other stuff. If you understand the holiness and majesty of God and that God became a man, that's the hardest one to believe because that's just nuts. That's paraphrasing Lewis, by the way. So it shouldn't shock us because when we don't understand things, what do we tend to do? We tend to make up stories to help us understand things, right? So this is where heresy has come in the church for 2,000 years. Early church, it was Apollinarianism. It said that Christ had a human body but a divine mind and spirit. Nestorianism said it was two persons, one divine, one human, that lived within a single body. Monophysitism says that one nature, Jesus had one nature, and it's kind of half and half. It's like, it's like a, you know, the, the, the horse with like the lion's head or something, kind of half and half. And the council at Chalcedon, when they got together in the fifth century, the, the church leaders came together and they said, we've got to respond to this heresy. All these things that are trying to figure out the, the humanity and divinity together of Christ, we know what the scripture says. So we are going to make a statement as the leaders of the church, as to what the Bible says about Jesus. Here's what the Council of Chalcedon affirmed, and they affirmed all that's been taught in the Scripture. It says Jesus was consubstantial. That means he's of the same substance with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood in all things like unto us without sin begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the God-bearer according to the manhood, pay close attention, one and the same, Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, 
inconfusedly, unchangeable, indivisibly, inseparably. For those of you who just got lost, that's okay. I did a little bit too. You know what they're saying? Ego emi. That God, Yahweh, I am who I am, became flesh in this Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. Not two natures, not like one nature living in another nature, not all that stuff. The God-man, Jesus as we saying, the son of God. This is where modern heresies come from. We don't use that word heresy very much, but modern errors in theology. You hear people all the time say, well, Jesus is a good prophet. No, he's not. You know why? He's a great prophet. You know why he's a great prophet? Because God tends to be a good prophet. <laughs> he's a good teacher. No, he's not. He's a great teacher. You know why? Because he wrote the book. He's a good example for me to follow after. I got the WWJD bracelet, and I'm trying to do what Jesus would do, man. That's the thing. I, 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 that's, he's a good example. He is a great example. You know why? Because he is ego me, God in the flesh. And they all sound great, don't they? He's a good prophet. He's a good teacher. He's a great example. They sound benign at worst but even positive and biblical at best. But listen close, the Bible never intended to leave those options open to you and me. That Jesus was just a good prophet, good teacher, good example. Never intended to leave those options open. He claimed divinity in Matthew chapter 14. He proved it by walking on the sea. He proved it in his miracles. He proved it in his resurrection. He is God in the flesh, ego e me. I had a good buddy in high school. We were in a Bible study together the last couple years of high school, and early in college, he started to act a little funny. <clears throat> and when I say funny, I mean um, he, he started to claim that if he trained hard for a week, he could play in the NBA. He was my height, so I know that's tough to believe that I couldn't play in the NBA. But he started to claim, like he would say stuff like, hey, last night I learned a new language. I'm going, well, that's kind of weird. Eventually, he started to claim that he was the risen Christ come back to judge the living and the dead. And he was for real. So now, us that were friends of his, we, we have an opportunity to respond, right? Here are our three options. One, you know you're not this, and you're trying to deceive us. You're deliberately deceiving us. You are lying to us. Two, you're nuts. You really believe this, and that means that you're crazy. And, and I don't, like, I don't want to leave, like, throw those terms around loosely. That, that means we need to get you into a situation where you can get some medication and you can get some help. Turns out that's what it was. <laughs> we got him into a situation, got some medication, got some help. Option number three, we could accept his claim. And we could say, we believe you. You are Jesus, the God-man. Come back to judge the living and the dead. When Jesus makes this claim, ego emi, I am who I am, you have three options. One, you are deliberately deceiving me. You know you're not this, but you're saying you're this, and you're lying. Number two, you're crazy, and we need to get you into a program. Number three, you are the God-man. His claim is not confused. By the way, my friend these days, 
married, has a child, pursuing a PhD in English, and he is worshiping Jesus, the only Son of God, this morning in his church in the South. So how do we respond when we're faced with the God-man? How do we respond? What's the appropriate response? Saying that you're lying to me? Saying that you're crazy? How do we respond when we're faced with Jesus, the only Son of God? We're going to look at Peter's response, four points of application, and then we'll be done. Pick it up, Matthew chapter 14, verse 28. Jesus says, ego emi, don't be afraid, verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus, verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Four points of application real quickly, and we'll be done this morning. When we are faced with Jesus, ego emi, the only Son of God, God in the flesh, our first response should be obedience despite difficulty. If you're taking notes, jot that down. Obedience despite difficulty. So Peter is afraid, he's whipped, he's exhausted. It has been a very difficult night. And so when he says, hey, if it's you, call me to come. And Jesus says, come. He's saying, step out of this boat, which is very, very unsafe, and step into the water, which is even worse. But this is a command, it's not a suggestion. When Jesus says, come, and Peter obeys, he messes up, we'll get there. He messes up, I get that, but he obeys despite difficulty, despite challenges, despite fear. 11 guys sitting in the boat, they didn't walk on water. Peter obeys despite difficulty. What is that one thing that God is calling you to do and you're saying, no way, it's too hard? Do you understand, do we understand as a body of Christ that this is not about a moral code? It's not about jumping through hoops. It's not about impressing God. It's about being faced with the God-man who says, come. So we obey despite difficulty. Is it global missions? Is it sacrificial giving that would mean a life change for you? Is it sharing the gospel with a friend? Because when the God-man calls, we respond despite difficulty. Even when it's dangerous, even when we're afraid, even when we're tired, even when it doesn't seem reasonable, he is the God-man. So we can take heart and obey despite difficulty. Number two, when faced with the God-man, our response should be a resolute focus on Jesus, the God-man. Remember back in the text when Jesus puts his disciples in a boat and he sends them to the other side and he says, I'll meet you on the other side. And they get, you know, three, four, however many miles into this trek and they're exhausted and they're tired and they see this silhouette on the water and they think it's a ghost. Why didn't they think it was Jesus? He told them he was going to meet them. And I'm no wizard here, but like, I think they have to get to the other side in order for him to meet them, don't you? So if he promises he's going to get there, you ought to be looking for him in the process. 
They missed a resolute focus on Jesus, the God-man. When Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, that Greek word is oligopistos. It's allowing the material facts to weigh more heavily on your mind than the power of Jesus. So even when Peter stepped out, what he saw with his physical eyes became greater in his mind than what he saw with his faith-filled heart. You know, storms of our life can kind of seem overwhelming at times and we lose a resolute focus on Jesus, the God man. When the doctor says the tumor is malignant, when you have a child that's gone crazy, when a marriage falls apart, even when you try to keep it together, the storms of this life can seem far greater than the power of Jesus. But let me assure you, he is ego me. He is God in the flesh. He's not a normal guy. Keep your eyes focused on him. Look for him in the storms because when he shows up, you won't go, it's a ghost. You'll go, ah, there he is. He promised. My eyes have been looking for him. There he is. Number three, we respond with an undivided heart. An undivided heart. When Jesus asked Peter, why did you doubt that word doubt is interesting. It says, he says, why was your spirit divided? Why was your spirit divided between me and fear, between faith and fear? After taking the first few steps of a treacherous journey, Peter's heart and mind became divided between fear and faith. Peter represents all Christians that are caught between faith and doubt. In the depth of crisis, when all seems lost, when we're afraid for our lives, we remember to call on the Savior. We find his grace sufficient for our needs. His power is made perfect in our weakness. And you know what the great thing about Jesus is? When Peter's heart becomes divided, when he starts to look down and, and he sees something different than Jesus, when he loses his focus on the God-man and he begins to sink, you know what Jesus doesn't do? Rest of you 11, you see, this is why you have to focus on me. You see, he's flailing for his life here. Forgot your floaties, Peter. The author of Scripture Matthew actually adds a great adverb here. It says, immediately. Listen, immediately, Jesus reached down and grabbed Peter and pulled him into the boat. He's always there to save for those, heart, those who have hearts that are fully focused on him. We have a saying in our house that God is never late and he's very rarely early. Jesus always right on time for those whose heart is steadfast on him. Finally, we're going to conclude with this. When we're faced with the God-man, our response is uninhibited worship. Uninhibited worship. I want to be really clear here. When Jesus gets back in the boat and he calms the storm, you know what his disciples don't do? They don't say thanks. They don't even say thank you sincerely. Oh my gosh, thank you. Or they don't say, wow, that was cool. We're like out there, walking. Kind of some crazy skis or something. What's going on? That was awesome. It says when they got back in the boat, the disciples worshipped him. I have a friend I was talking to recently. I said, when did you get serious about your faith? He said, I don't know if I'm serious about my faith yet. I said, okay, good. That's honest. I like that. 
He said, you know, all my life I've always thanked God, I've always blessed God, I've always been grateful to God, but in the last year I've started to fear God. And I'm not talking about like scared fear, I'm talking about awe and worship. When we are faced with the God-man, that God of Revelation 4, that God of Isaiah 6, come in the flesh to save you and save me, worked himself to us so that we would not have to work ourselves to him as if we could have any way. When we're faced with that God-man, our response is worship and awe. Thank you is great. Grateful is great. That was cool is great. But the appropriate response, the most appropriate response is uninhibited worship. Obedience despite difficulty, a resolute focus on the God-man, an undivided heart, and uninhibited worship when we are faced with ego Amy. Pray with me. God, you are great and you are exalted above the highest heavens. There is nobody like you. Jesus, you are the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the firstborn of all creation, the lion and the lamb. You are exalted. You hold the keys to hell and death. You are great and we are small. We are not worthy, as your cousin John the Baptist said, to stoop down and untie your sandals. And yet you love us. Just as you save Peter, you save us immediately when we call on you. Teach us, O oh God to obey despite difficulty, to keep our eyes on you, to keep our heart fully focused on you, and to worship you in spirit and truth. In the name of Christ, the people of God together said, amen. amen.